Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Turn with me to Matthew 18. We'll get there eventually, okay? We have been talking about the church. What is the church? Uh, we've, been, we've been looking at that, and we've been talking about the church and the kingdom, the kingdom and the church. The Greek word that we translate kingdom is basilia. The Greek word we translate church is ekklesia. We talked about how the basilia uh, is everywhere and encompasses everything. It is the rule of God. It, the kingdom of God is the king's dominion. It's the rule of God in human history, in, 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 uh, in his universe. The church is subservient to the kingdom. The church, all of the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the church. The church is a subsidiary of the kingdom. And so, too often people use those terms synonymously as if they're the same thing, and they're not. And what happens when you do that, you reduce the kingdom, uh, you make it less than it is, and you make the church more than it is. But once you make it more than it is, eventually it becomes less than it is because you unplug it from its source. And so it becomes an embassy without a nation. It becomes a, 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 a governmental body with no authority to rule. And so uh, we need to understand what the church is. Now, for years, the church lacked a theology of the kingdom. By and large, in America, and really across the globe, there, was, there wasn't a lot of talk about the kingdom. When it was talked about, it it was used interchangeably with the church. I was trained, literally taught in Bible school, that the church and the kingdom were synonymous. And so therefore, when, they would, when, when the people that I sat under would teach on the parables of the kingdom, they kind of twisted them to fit the church. And it really, it, it, it ended up with some weird uh, conclusions that really violated the Word of God and robbed us of precious revelation. But in, in the last number of years, there's become a great emphasis on the kingdom of God. And just historically, uh, where this has come from, uh, the, you know, Bill Johnson ha- has been one that's taught a lot on the kingdom. But pr- a precursor to that was the vineyard movement under John Wimber. John Wimber taught a lot about the kingdom, and he had a real solid theology of the kingdom. And uh, he was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And, but John Wimber got his theology of the kingdom from a, a theologian back in the 40s and 50s by the name of George Eldon Ladd. George Eldon Ladd had some great books on the kingdom. I think the, uh, the, just the, the real, the, if you're going to look for one book on, theologically on the kingdom, I would get his, it's a blue book, it's light blue. I can't remember the name, but it's a really good book. I can see it. it uh, it's called The Kingdom of God, I think. But uh, anyway, in the, he's the one who coined the phrase, the eschatological tension of the already and the not yet. You ever heard people talk about that? That the kingdom is both coming and it's here. There's a, there's a tension. Is it here? Yes. Is it coming? Yes. So it's already broke into the now, but it's not here in its fullness. That's the concept. And George Eldon Ladd was really the one who began to hammer out a language, a theology of the New Testament for 
the layman, for the, 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 you know, breaking it down for the common Christian that, that doesn't have a PhD and doesn't read Greek and Hebrew. And so he, he was really the one that articulated that theologically. He has some theological works. John Wimber took that and really broke it down for the layman. John Wimber was just an old hippie. He, he used to, he used to uh, work with the Righteous Brothers. You know, you got that love and feeling. The Righteous Brothers. He was, he would, he was, uh, there, I don't, he would work, I don't remember what he did. I know, I, I know, it's good. I, okay. We will, we will be carrying my first album in the bookstore soon. Uh, and I just dated myself by saying album, you know, my first, our first CD. Uh, reel to reel and eight track as well. Uh, but anyway, John Wimber was an old hippie, got radically saved and, uh, began to seek the Lord, became a church growth expert, but he was one that merged church growth principles with signs and wonders. And so he began to teach this class in Fuller Theological Seminary and God began to show up in tremendous signs and wonders. And out of that came all this, this, it was really the emergent, it was called the third wave. You had the first wave uh, Pentecostal movement back in the uh, early 1900s, out of which came the Assemblies of God, the Open Bible, the Four Square, the Church of God in Christ, and all these classical Pentecostal denominations. Then you had the second wave, which was the charismatic movement in the late 60s, early 70s, in which it hit the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Methodists, and, and, uh, and a lot of the Episcopalians really got touched. And so you had this charismatic movement, which was distinct from the Pentecostal movement. But then you had this, what's known as the third wave, historically, which came out of John Wimber. And uh, he was an evangelical that bumped into the things of the Spirit and started flowing into, in it. And I remember the first time I heard John Wimber, he looked like a hippie. He'd wear the old Hawaiian shirts and the big white beard. He just kind of looked like he never really recovered from being a hippie, you know. And uh, man, we were all wearing suits and little silk hankies in our pockets, you know. And man, we were, you know, we, you know, it was like a competition who had the best hand painted tie, you know. And I, I was into that, man. I still got tons of those ties, much to my wife's discouragement. But we, uh, but John Wimber was this guy who brought a informal. Uh, style to the things of the Spirit. Whereas I was raised when you prophesy, thus saith the Lord. And then you gave the word in King James Version. As if God speaks Elizabethan English, you know. And that was just, and it, there's nothing wrong with that. It was just the culture. And that was how we, and, and a lot of what we do is not necessarily God. The style, the style is us. It's our culture. And that's neither good nor bad unless it becomes a stumbling block to the culture you're trying to minister to. And John Wimber was this old hippie out in California. And he was just, instead of those, he'd say, dude, I feel like the Lord is saying. And we're like, whoa, you know, is this a prophecy or not? Because you didn't preface it with this, thus saith the Lord. And it wasn't thus says the Lord, it's saith. Because God only saith, you know. And, uh, you know, so you're, and so John was just real casual and he would release things. And I remember hearing him talk, he would stories about him being on a plane and he'd look across the aisle and there he looked at a guy and a guy turned and all of a sudden he saw the words adultery written on his forehead and he said, Lord, what is it? And the Lord gave him a name and he said, hey, sir, could I talk to you? And the guy leaned over and he said, who is Sally? And the guy turned white and the blood rushed from his head and he said, we need to talk. And he said, but not here. My wife's sitting here, he whispered. And uh, so they went and sat 
in another area and he said, who's Sally? And you're having an affair with her. You need to repent. And, and uh, I mean, this to me, this was unheard of. This was like Acts, you know, book of Acts stuff. And I'm not minimizing what that is today, but I mean, you never heard about that stuff. He was the precursor to what has become more normal and more common among the charismatic Pentecostal movement, the revival movement. And he was really a, a really founding father of, of that and uh, the style of worship that we enjoy. And so uh, that just so you have a little historical frame of reference. So John Wimber really began to teach on the kingdom. A lot of people, when Bill Johnson began to come around, they began to talk about John Wimber really, uh, or uh, Bill Johnson carrying the mantle of John Wimber, who ironically died of cancer after having such a successful uh, healing ministry. And it was fascinating to me, just a little historical study here, fascinating to me, it might be boring to you, but just bear with me here, fascinating to me that as I begin to get into John Wimber's very scholarly treatment of the word and of the kingdom, he was a, he was a scholar, he was a Bible school professor, highly respected uh, professor at Fuller, as I began to study these guys and the conclusions they were coming to by studying the concept of the kingdom, I was shocked at how some of the conclusions they were coming to were the same ones that were, came out of the word of faith movement that was part of the Pentecostal, the early Pentecostal movement. In fact, just another little historical point is really the word of faith movement predated the Pentecostal movement. The word of faith movement was a belief in healing based on the word of God, not a healing anointing or a gift of healing. And so even though some of them believed that spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, were no longer valid, they weren't exercising in their minds a 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gift of healing. What they were operating is, is faith in the word, that by his stripes we're here, the word says it, we believe it, we're going to impose that faith on our circumstance until it submits. And there was a tremendous healing move that predated the Pentecostal, the, the reemergence of the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s. Because this was happening in the late 1800s. And so there's these different streams that come together. It's just fascinating. It's good for us to know the background on all this stuff. So what does this have to do with what we were talking about? I'm not sure. I'm going to try to get there. This emphasis of the kingdom is very important for us to understand. And it's being restored to the church. It really is. You can, you can know what God is saying when you begin to hear a theme from the different corners of the church, different streams, different people emphasizing. It's that principle that John, the revelator, was referring to when he says, let he who has ears hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. We're hearing this theme, and, it, and rest assured, God is emphasizing it is thoroughly rooted in the Scriptures. And we need to understand the kingdom. Because for many years, the church lost the concept of the kingdom. But I said a couple weeks ago, we are in danger of emphasizing the kingdom and losing the church. That in talking about the kingdom, we still have to give room for this theological concept, this thoroughly scriptural idea of what is the church, the ecclesia of God. We need to understand, why is it that we gather together? And so, that's what we're talking about. The church is subservient to the kingdom. The church is not the entire kingdom. It's, it's, it's the expression of the kingdom of the gathered believers. 
But there's a purpose. And so I just want to run through a few points and then we're going to get into Matthew 18. Now, when we first started talking about this, we talked out of Matthew 16, where Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the word we translate church is ecclesia. It's unfortunate that we translate it church because church really has a reduced meaning, even in the English And it was adopted. And so there's been a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers who have tried to recover that by utilizing this English word church. But the better translation would be, I I will build my assembly, my called out ones. Literally, it's a compound word to mean called out ones. But when Jesus used that term, he wasn't just using a word. He was using an idea already pregnant with meaning because of the age in which he lived. He was borrowing a term already clearly defined in the minds of his hearers. And when he said, I will build my ecclesia, he was referring to a body, an authoritative body of people. People who were gathered for a purpose. They were, there was an authoritative body. They were convened to legislate for the kingdom. Rome had ecclesias. They were people infused with authority. They, had, they were to understand the, the desires of the emperor for the kingdom. Then they'd gather to legislate for the kingdom and determine how are we going to carry out the desires so that the kingdom of Rome, the empire, would look like what is in the heart of the emperor. And when Jesus, so when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, he was referring to that and they clearly understood what he meant. So, Matthew 18, let's read a verse here. Let's read verse 19 and 20 of Matthew 18. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. That's heavy. It's interesting, in the Greek, that word anything means anything. That's a, that's a, a surprising verse. Listen to what it says in verse 20. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. And that little verse really is a great definition of what the ecclesia is. So let me just go through four or five quick points. Number one, the church, the ecclesia, is not a place. Now, most of us know that. We, we've heard that. Well, the church is not a building. It's not a place. And that's true. The church is not a place. It's people. But number two, it's people and not a person. It's not a place and it's not a person. It's people. The reason it's people is you can't do church single-handedly. There's no such thing as a single-person church. Because it violates the word. That's nonsensical. That's like saying, I'm a one-person group. No, you're not. You're an individual. You're not a group. You can't be a group without someone else. And the church is a group of people. It's not one person. Now, let me back up a little bit. This thing about the church not being a place. We know that, but we got to be careful with that as well. Because although the term ecclesia does not refer to a place or a building, that doesn't negate the very real theological truth, the very real scriptural truth of sacred spaces and sacred places. 
God is concerned about having geographical locations that are marked out for heaven, that, that, that have been established for His presence, that have been sanctified. And when that happens, it's sanctified from the ground up. And the skies are cleared and there becomes a no-fly zone declared over that place. They are places where the enemy has been crippled in his ability to rule and reign over those sacred spaces. And that may be a new concept to you, but I'm telling you, it's thoroughly scriptural. The first time we see this is Genesis 28, where Jacob stumbles into a place. It says he came to a certain place. He stumbled into it, he thought, by accident. It wasn't his intention, it was God's intention. And God brought him to this place, and Jacob ended up renaming this place. It was called Luz before that, but after that it was called Beth-El. Beth meaning house, El, Elohim, the house of God. Because Jacob had an encounter with God in a dream, all of a sudden he saw the father at the top of a ladder and God was speaking his destiny over Jacob and angels were ascending. They, they, didn't, they weren't descending and ascending, they were ascending and descending. Because these were angels assigned to that particular geographic location and Jacob stumbled into this place known as an open heaven. Or he said, this is none other than, he calls it two things, from two different perspectives, he said, this is none other than the, the uh, gate of heaven, it's the house of God. From an earthly perspective, it was an entry point for heaven's traffic. It was a place where God had air, secured air supremacy by human interaction. Because Jacob stumbled into a place that his grandfather Abraham had sacrificed in several times. And something was established in the spirit. It's very, very important we understand that. Because in redefining the church and understanding what that is, we begin to embrace this concept that no, it's not a place. You and I can have church in Walmart. If you and I meet... And there's, there's particular things that we do when we meet. We have church in Walmart. The ecclesia has been convened. And that's a wonderful thing. But that doesn't negate this other truth. And that's important. Because I'm telling you, I have seen this geographic location in the Spirit. I had an encounter with God back in the office a couple of years ago. And Christopher had given me a word a few months earlier. And he said... You were asking the Lord about how he sees you and he showed you. He said, now the Lord's going to show you how he sees Heartland. And my heart got excited. And I began to ask and pull on that, that promise. And I began to ask the Lord. And one night there were some of us as elders just hanging out on a Monday evening in the office. And the Spirit of God fell and I went into a vision and the Lord showed me this place in the Spirit. And I've referred to it before. Some of you have never heard me talk about it, but it was... I'll tell you real quick, there was, in uh, what I saw in the Spirit was this massive tunnel that was going directly up into the heavens. And it was bigger than this sanctuary. It was as if, you know, one of those tunnel drilling machines that go into solid granite, and you see this perfect cylindrical hole into gr solid granite. That's what it looked like, but it was going up. And it just went up to where I couldn't see anymore. And, it, and the Lord told me, he said, there has been a, a no-fly zone established here. And there was some other thing. And it rocked me. I'm telling you what, I got touched. But he told me this. He said, if you don't understand what has been established here, you won't leverage it for my purposes. You see, Jacob 
enjoyed an environment he did not understand. He stumbled into Bethel, but he didn't understand Bethel. He was enjoying it. He said, wow, God's here. This is amazing. But he didn't understand what it took to forge that open heaven. It was the sacrifices of his granddad. We know that because of Scripture. Jacob wasn't walking around with the book of Genesis in his back pocket. It hadn't been written yet. He was living it. And the danger is that we enjoy things we don't understand. And when we enjoy things we don't understand, we can still enjoy them, but we can't replicate them. We can't be a catalyst to see that happen elsewhere. So God wants to give us a clear understanding, a theology of an open heaven, a theology of land and sacred spaces, because God is very, very, very interested in planet Earth. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. That is the first word of Holy Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why does he mention that together? And why did he create them together? For years, I just assumed that the heavens were eternal and the earth was temporary. You know, it was like made in time and it had a beginning. If I'd have just challenged that thought, I'd have realized that's kind of stupid. The only eternal thing is God. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I've heard people preach, well, you know, hey, the heavens are more real because they're eternal. And they've always been here. No, they have not. He said in the beginning... He created two things simultaneous, the heavens and the earth. Why? Well, he created the earth for man to develop into the fullness of God, and it was his dream to see that expression. Well, why did he create the heavens? Well, he created for himself to have a place to hang out. No, Solomon said, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. I'm here to tell you that the heavens were created for you as well as the earth. And God never intended for them to function independently. They were created together because their destinies were tied together. And God intended for heaven and earth to operate together. And when man fell, that man was the connector between the two. And when man fell, his spirit died. And there was a severing of heaven and earth. And Jesus came not only to awaken your spirit man and give you new life, he also came to reestablish that connection between heaven and earth. And that's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. He's saying we want to see what's going on up there manifest down here and we must not settle for anything less. Regardless of your eschatology. And that statement doesn't contradict any eschatology doesn't contradict any end-time view, whether you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, or you're not even sure what a millennial is. Or if your millennial gets really under your nerves because they're still living with you. You know, it's you just don't, don't let that in, you know, mess with. The fact is, we're to pray heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And so there are sacred spaces, but that is not what the church is. The church is the people So the church is not a place, it's people. It's not a person, it's people. You can't do church alone. Because the church, by definition, the word ecclesia is the assembly or the called out ones. Plural, it's the called out, it's the assembly of people. So it's not a place, it's people. It's not a person, it's people. And it's people gathered around the person of Jesus Christ. So, 
it's more than Christians hanging out together. We can hang out, hang out together and have an Xbox party. <laughs> and I would never do that, by the way. Don't invite me because I'm no good. My kids just, I, I was born too late to get good at it. But you can, you can have a bunch of brothers, you know, hanging out around the Xbox as believers. But that ain't church. It's not bad. It's just not church. Because you got to gather in his name. So it's a group of people gathering around his name with one extra component. You are gathered in his name for his purposes. And when you do that, all of a sudden, something locks and loads. And the church has convened. The ecclesia of God has been convened and the authority of heaven begins to land. I just wish that there were, you know, like sound effects that would just happen. That, you know, that would just be so cool. But that would take a lot of preparation. John would be back there on the sound. You know, the, the authority of heaven begins to land when the ecclesia convenes. And we need to understand this. Because the ecclesia of God, it's not just us merely gathering, you know, hanging out. It's we literally convene the holy legislative body of heaven to do heaven's business on earth. That's what this is about. And when we have a mindset for that, then all of a sudden we gather with intentionality and with expectation. We expect things to happen. We expect, we don't, we don't think it, whoa, isn't that weird that Mark got healed and no one laid hands on him? No, that's normal. Because the authority of heaven began to enter into the room. All of a sudden, heaven begins to land on earth. The authoritative body of believers began to declare the glories of their king. We enthrone him. We take that mobile throne of heaven called worship and we set it in our midst. And we begin to uh, convene the ecclesia around the throne and we begin to give his praise. And you know what he does? He promises us right here in that verse, I'll show up. I'll be there. If you gather in my name for my purposes, then I commit to you. That's your side of the deal. My side is I'm coming. And I'm going I'm to begin to operate on your behalf. And we need to understand this. And, and now catch this. We can convene the ecclesia in the aisles of a Walmart. When two believers come around the corner and we see each other, we hug each other, man, it's so good to see you, that we're family. And there should be this holy affection that just bubbles up, oh, it's so good to see you, we just give each other a holy kiss, you know, or, or, or at least a hug, you know. And, uh, you, you know, you, give, just, you see each other, this holy affection. But it's when we stop and say, hey, you know what, man, I want, I want to tell you, I, I just heard about Sister Susie, she just, this such and such happened to her, we need to pray for her. In so doing, all of a sudden, you've convened the ecclesia. Something else happens. There's, there's, a, there's an invisible element that begins to register in the physical realm. Because you have ushered in the authority of the king. You've invited him into that little meeting in the aisle. Around the spaghettios, you know. You're all of a sudden, the holiness of God comes in. And you're going to exercise the, whole, the, the authority. Of, I don't know why it was spaghettios. But the, the authority of heaven is now registered on that situation. And we need to realize that. Because if we're not careful, 
we, well, we don't have all this theology behind these practices. We see each other. We meet by the SpaghettiOs. And hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Uh, hey, be praying for Barb. Be praying for Susie. Be praying for Al. Okay, let's do that right now. And we look at ourselves as these weak, anemic little people on earth, just little human beings, whispering up a prayer that, you know, we know God hears, but there's just a whole lot of things going on. And we're not stepping into our authoritative role. We're not realizing that all of a sudden, the, the you know, the, author, the, the mobile throne of heaven just landed by the spaghetti aisle. And God begins to move on our behalf. We need to be conscious, intentional, and expectant. This is a heavy thing. That's what the ecclesia is. So the ecclesia is anytime you and I meet and all of a sudden we bring Jesus into the equation. Hey, you know what? That's good to see you. Man, I love you. But we need to, for a moment here, register the authority of heaven on a situation I just heard about. All right, let's do it. And that third that third individual enters into this thing. The, the, the Godhead begins to move on our behalf. That is the ecclesia. It's not just us getting together. You can't have church alone. You are not the ecclesia alone. You are not the church. The church is never a me, it's a we. It's a us. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name. Now I know I've, I've said this several times over the last number of weeks. But we really need to catch this. Jesus is letting us in on something in this passage. He is saying that whenever two or three are gathered in his name. There he is in their midst. He shows up with them. Whether you see it or not. He is there. And it begs the question. Why would he say that when we know He's already everywhere present. We know theologically. David said, I can't even go to hell and get away from you. You are everywhere. He's talking about the theological term we call omnipresent. Everywhere present. God is everywhere. So why would he say, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We already know you're there, Lord. You're omnipresent. He's not talking about that. Jesus never says anything just to be talking. He's, he's communicating us to us a key that there is an added dimension of his self that he is going to commit to that too when, when they gather in his name. When there's that dimension of we're saying, hey, you know why we're here? We're here because we're gathering in his name. We are the ecclesia, the authoritative body of heaven on earth. We are an embassy of the kingdom of God showing up in a foreign land. And we're going to exert the desires of our emperor because he's come to take over. But he's going to come, he's come to take over, not by lording over, but by serving under. He is, as Lord, he is the servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you come as the servant of all. And we come to be an influence and we serve. Because at this point, King Jesus conquers by winning men's heart through surrender. There's coming a day, the first time he came on a cult, offering himself as the king. The Roman custom was... They could come in on a colt and it was to offer peace. But when he comes in on his war horse next time, he's coming to bring subjection. Every knee will bow, whether voluntary or involuntary. But until that day, we are here 
to serve under and become the yeast of the kingdom that begins to affect society. And so we need to realize when we gather, we are a kingdom people gathered in his name for his purposes. The ecclesia would study the heart of the emperor. They wanted to know what his desires are. They would study the laws and then they would legislate and execute those those things for the expansion of the emperor's desire and kingdom. That is what we're called to do. Now, all that said, let's look at the context of this particular verse. Because that verse is a very good definition of what the ecclesia is. It gives us insight. It's the gathering in his name for his purposes. But let's look at the context of this verse, because it's a sobering context. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. When I was in Teen Challenge back in 1983, uh, they, they, one of the first things they told us as students, because we all lived in this house together, a bunch of guys coming from various backgrounds, and we were all a mess, and uh, we're going to live together, and it was a powder keg for conflict. And that was one of the, the really valuable things about living in Teen Challenge. Because of the conflict, you had to deal with you. Because our whole lives, we were wanting to blame everybody else. And the staff would always use that opportunity to show that this is about you. You need to deal with you. Yeah, but he did this. Yeah, but you had to deal with you. I remember I had a roommate. He would, big old boy, man, he would take my, my towel and wipe his feet on it. And just say, hey, I found us a new rug. So we can clean our feet and just stare at me like, what are you going to do about it? I mean, just... <laughs> I'd be praying next to my bed, trying to be a man of God, and he'd come up and start hitting me in the ribs. Ooh, holy man. Ooh, real man of God, aren't you? Ooh. I'd be like... <laughs> the day he put my towel... He did a lot of things, but that, that one... He'd wear my shirt. He was a lot bigger than me. I, was, I weighed all of 130 pounds at the time, and he was probably about weighs about what I do now, which is 140 um, but uh, no, okay, I lied. 142. So, but uh, he, my shirts would be ripping, and he, you know, and he had all these new clothes in a in a big old uh, box there. But he wouldn't wear his. He's saving those for when he goes home. Just trying to irritate me and just provoking me all the time. But that day, he, I came in and he never cleaned the room. On Saturdays we'd clean the room, and he'd just sit in bed and say, "Oh, Dave, you missed a spot. Uh, hey, hey, move my shoes too while you're at it. You know, just just trying to mess with me." So I come in the room one day, and it's clean, and I'm shocked. He said, man, hey, I cleaned the room. I said, man, thank you. I almost said his name. I said, thank you. And he said, and I got us a new rug, and I looked down, and there was my one bath towel in his muddy boots. So now we can keep the floors clean. And he's just grinning at me. And I don't know what came over me. Well, yes, I do. <laughs> it didn't come over me. It came out of me. There was his Bible and all his notes from class that he obviously wasn't applying at that moment. And I drop-kicked it across the room. I know, that's terrible. Kicked his Bible. And I remember the look on his face. And I felt a, a, just a little small measure of satisfaction, immediately followed by fear, because he was a big guy. And I remember running out of the room. And it, the good thing is I could run faster scared than he could mad. And I came across the threshold of the, of the staff's office 
And he stopped there and he just left because he knew, you know, couldn't do, do anything to me at that time. I'm hoping it's going to subside before I get back to the room. And, I'm, and I remember asking the staff where I said, how far do I need to go with this guy? I've done this. And then how far do I need to go with this guy? How far? I was so mad. And this particular counselor, he would always say this. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. He'd always preface anything he's going to tell you by three. Let me tell you something. And by the third one, you're like, tell me. He said, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. And then he didn't tell me anything. He asked me something. Could have at least said, let me ask you something. He said, let me tell you something. How far do you want to go with Jesus? And I was like, oh, man. It cut my heart. How far do I have to go with him? How far do you want to go with Jesus? And so that environment was so good. It was because of this that this particular scripture was a permanent fixture within Teen Challenge Life. And we called it Light Session. And it was an acronym for Living in Group Harmony Together. It was the the, the mechanism by which we would release the tension in the room by dealing with relational conflict in a healthy way. By practicing brave communication. Because in the past, we didn't practice brave communication. We would either avoid problems, we would blame, shift blame, or we'd you know, get into fights, and all of those were mature expressions, rather than just sitting someone down and saying, hey, brother, I got boundaries, and you just crossed them. Let me just touch on something for a second here. Get, get down a little road here for just a second. A number of years ago, we had Danny Silken. How many of you remember having Danny Silken? He taught on boundaries. It was so good. And then we've had Dan Moeller in a number of times. Man, he was so good. And you know what? There comes a point at which Danny and Dan, if you put their teaching side by side, eventually... They would disagree with one another. And I know some of you felt that in the room at times. When Dan would come in, it'd be like, man, I love what he's saying. The anointing's here, man. I see it in scripture, but how does that fit with this? And, and you feel like you got to choose sides. And, and here, here let, me, let me just help you out here, okay? Dan Moeller preaches pastorally to the individual. And so he is about stewarding your heart in relationships. And his advice for everything would be, die. Just die. Okay? You're dead. Now, he says it a whole lot more eloquently, and I love Dan. Man, I tell you what, every time I hear him, I, I get like 30 messages out of everything he says. He's just a brilliant teacher. And what? I completely agree with what he's saying. But you got to keep it in context. It's all about you dealing with you. Because he's talking about the individual Christian. Dan doesn't talk about creating culture. He doesn't talk about a church family. Those kind of dynamics. Because he's dealing with you in your relationship with Jesus and others. And it's about your personal relationship. And the answer in conflict is die. Just die. Let me tell you something. Die. Okay? <laughs> Danny Silk, on the other hand, he is creating culture. He's about a leader, and it's not just about me dying. It's about if we're all... See, because if there's ten people in the congregation, and five of them are doing all the dying, and the other five are doing all, all the violating of boundaries and, and not dealing with their own heart, what happens? You got, these other five, men, they're going to be very godly. 
but you're going to have a really dysfunctional church. Because in the church, in building culture, it's not just about die, die. It's about, I'm going to die, but I'm also going to set some boundaries and I'm going to hold you accountable for your behavior. Because your behavior is going to be like cancer that's going to touch everybody else in the room. And so this is about leadership and dealing with crowds of people and culture. And this is about discipleship and dealing with individuals. Two totally different things. They're both valid. They're both true. I love those guys' teachings. But if you don't put them in the right file box, pretty soon you take Dan's teaching and you're putting up with and even enabling some very dysfunctional behavior. And the whole time you're dying and, man, you're, you're getting a lot of death out of it. And, you know, there's a whole lot of character being produced in you, but there's a whole lot of damage being produced on others because we're not holding these individuals accountable. And so both of these are true, but we got to keep them categorized. Matthew 18 is about Danny Silk's culture stuff, okay? It's about dealing with groups of people. And yeah, if somebody sins against me, the first thing I need to do is, let me tell you something, die. I need to just die to my own rights. I can't, I can't get bitter and say, well, because they're, you know, it's that old thing that Dan says, don't let sin against you produce sin in you. That's true. But after I've locked and loaded my own response and desires and got my heart right with God, <laughs> then we move into this other dimension where we're fighting for one another's maturity. It's not just about my maturity, it's about yours. And we're going to establish boundaries. We're going to say, you know what? There's a fence line between us. I have a yard I'm responsible for, and you have a yard you're responsible for. I'm not going to move the, the fence into your yard and tend your garden, and I'm not going to allow you to move the fence line into my yard and tend my garden. I'll trim my bushes, you trim yours. And when you start trimming my bushes, I'm going to call you on it because I love you. And I also have to take care of my own yard because if I'm not taking care of my own yard, I'm not going to have anything to give anybody else. And that makes healthy church relationships. And that's what Matthew 18 is about. So, I've made up a lot of time, and it's now noon, so let me just run through this very quickly. Number one, he says, go to that brother and confront him. And if he receives it, hallelujah, you've covered him. No one else has to know. Because we love one another. We don't want to pull the blankets off each other and, hey, this is just between you and I then. Man, thank you. And, and you know what? Intimacy is built on the, the ground of conflict. You ever notice how when you go through a conflict and you really resolve it, you're closer than ever? It's awesome. It's why marriage, you just keep falling more and more in love, you know? Don't come to any conclusions on it. That was just a joke, okay? I saw a meme on Facebook. Pray for your pastor's wife because she's got to live with the pastor. So, the, uh, so you go to that person, then the second one is if they don't receive it, you take another brother with you and confront them. If they don't receive it then, if they do, it's a done deal. Hallelujah. The brother's restored. If they don't receive it then, you take them before the church and confront them. And if they don't receive it, then you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, they're no longer allowed to be part of the ecclesia, the gathering. There's a sister passage to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul's rebuking the Corinthians. He says, you got a guy over here that's sleeping with his 
father's wife. So it's his stepmom, and he's sleeping with her, and they're like, hey, we're free, it's grace. You know, we're not under the law. And Paul is horrified. He said, he said, man, this would make the pagans blush, and you're using grace as a guise to just to, to reinforce this dysfunction and this sin, and it's going to have terrible ramifications. It's a cancer that needs to be cut out. And he says, so I'm going to get, tell you how to handle this. He said, when you are together... And the Spirit of the Lord is present, and I am with you in spirit. Then turn that brother over to the devil for the destruction of his flesh, that hopefully in the end, his spirit will be saved. That's what he's saying. He's saying that man is in danger of spending eternity in hell for that type of sin because adulterers, fornicators, homosexual offenders, drunkards, those have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, Paul says. And so he says, confront this brother and cut him off from the fellowship so that hopefully that will be dealt with in his flesh and in the end he will return to walking with the Lord. That's what he's saying. But the language is undeniable and it's how they overlap in these two passages. He says, when you are together, Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name and I am there in the midst of them, Paul says, when you come together, when you assemble, and the Spirit of the Lord is present, he said, then deal with that. That is the context of this binding and loosing thing, and wherever two or three are gathered in his name. The context is church discipline. Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to close with this. We'll circle back around sometime and talk more about this. But here's the thing. When we don't do this, when we don't deal with sin... When we don't resolve it, and we allow it, we don't confront it, and it isn't resolved, and and if it isn't resolved, we don't take it to the next level, what happens is a cancer begins to breed in the body. And it, it gives a false perception of truth. We have got to be willing to deal with sin. Man, the Lord has convicted me. There have been times where I've confronted people behind the scenes. They haven't received it. Left in anger. And, and, and don't go... You know, there, there's a lot of people that have left on great basis. This, this is not the, the norm here, okay? So I don't want you to start going through the Rolodex. Who's not here? It, there's been very few of this. But I'm telling you, God's convicted me because there have been people who left in rebellion and things were wrong in their, their life. And in being confronted, they left in anger and went out of here. And I kept my mouth shut thinking I'm taking the high ground by covering them. And they have spread lies. And in inevitability, what happened was I became a partner in those things. And I skewed the view because people looked at them and said, well, look at, you know, they're, they're, listen to what they're saying. And everything's okay in their life. And everything wasn't okay because I refused to do Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a way to snap the line and for us to come under the fear of the Lord and realize that although we have a loving Father, we also have a Father who will not tolerate sin. And that if we're humble and we'll deal with it, God will deliver us. But if we are deceptive and we're stubborn, then there are going to be heavy consequences. And one of the ways in which God cleanses his body and delivers those in deception is they are cut off from the body. They're they're not allowed to enjoy the benefits of the ecclesia because they're not living up to the responsibility of being a member of the ecclesia. 
So it's very important for us to understand. For us to be members of the ecclesia, we have a responsibility one to another to live in healthy relationships. And the context of this, it's the way to deal with conflict in the body and it's a way to deal with unhealthy issues in the body that if allowed to uh, remain goes from being dysfunctional to sinful to devastating. And so we've got to not, not just die and deny ourselves. We've got to love each other enough to have brave communication and hold each other's feet to the fire and say, listen, this is not right the way you're acting. And I love you enough to jeopardize our friendship for your freedom. I'd rather see you healthy and whole and functional relationally than have this relationship under the guise of, I've got to tolerate this stuff. It's very important. Let's stand. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, you are brilliant. You are the relationship expert. One of the titles attributed to God is the counselor. He's the counselor. Lord, we want your counsel. Lord, we want to have a healthy body of believers. We want to be healthy, and we need one another to be healthy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of brave communication and deep affection and love for one another that we will rescue each other from ourselves. We thank you for it, Jesus. In your name, hallelujah. I just want to take a moment here, just if you keep your head bowed. I felt this strong during worship, and I just was reminded of it here. I felt like, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, I just, I felt like there's somebody here that you're being really tempted in the area of finance. There's some, some things that you, you're being tempted to fudge on. And I even felt like you've stepped over the line in an area in finance and, and you're feeling, I can get away with it, but there, your conscience is bothering you and it's the Lord being merciful to you. And he doesn't want you to go down that road because it's the first step in an entirely wrong direction for your life. And I just, uh, man, I don't want to close the service without giving you that warning. God's trying to keep you from going in the wrong direction. So if there's some, some form or fashion you've been toying with making some financial decisions that are less than honest and less than the way they're supposed to legally be done, I want to encourage you, correct it. just felt like there was grace for you to correct that. And even, even if you have to go to some people, there's going to be a respect for your humility. And it's, they're going to begin to trust you because they realize that you don't have to get caught, that you deal with those things. So, Father, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. God bless you. Have a great week. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.